0: So before we get into our text, uh, I want to talk about something that we all struggle with, probably without exception. Patience. Amen. Sheree said really quickly. Anybody else besides me struggle with patience? Yep. Yes. Maybe I'm the only one who hates traffic, bad drivers. I don't know what it is, but when I get in the car, I, I just I feel like everyone else has lost their minds. Like I don't know why. They're like no one knows where they're going people drive 10 miles under the speed limit or drive with their blinker on forever uh, Or just have no care in the world talking on their phone while the light goes Patience I am reminded of my patience every day Uh, I love food and I love to cook but when I'm really hungry I have no patience for cooking Sometimes even the microwave takes too long I'm like staring at it Again this is just me Okay, thank you. So I know I'm not the only one who who doesn't want everything instant. If my internet is lagging and it takes too long for a page to load, it's like four seconds. Come on, like you just robbed three seconds of my life. And so many of you may not remember this, but life was very different before the uh, fast forward button. So I grew up in the eighties, but functionally in my house, we grew up in in the seventies because my parents were always late adopters to to technology. So if you've grown up with, with internet and YouTube and CDs, the fast forward button is amazing because you can skip through things. We used to have to watch commercials. Um, we used to have to pick the record needle up and move to the next song and try to get it right on that middle line. Like, like patience is something that uh, wasn't always such a struggle, but lately it becomes such a struggle because everything in our lives is so focused on instant gratification. Can we get this now? Can we have this, this now? And we do this in our, the little things in our lives, but in the big decisions in our lives, too, our careers. Uh, All right, Lord, when is the right job going to come? This person got something that I didn't. Uh, My next raise won't come for six months, a year. Like, what am I going to do for the next six months, for the next year? Uh, This is something that has happened in every stage of ministry for me, if I can be just completely transparent. Lord, I want to do this, and I have these grand plans, and and I want all these things to happen. And step by step, the Lord has worked patience in me because, uh, as many of you know, that patience is... The fruit of the Spirit. And without the Spirit, we can't have patience. Now, but many times we forget that we are filled with the Spirit and we want things now and we think God should be according to our timetable. So, why do we struggle with patience? Why is that such a difficult thing for us, especially in our culture? And what do we do to combat patience? And I would say the first thing is how we view God will determine how we view patience. And like many other things, our view of who God is and God's character will determine whether we can be patient or not. Because in reality, if God is sovereign and if God is ultimately in control, what do another five seconds, five minutes, five months, or five years matter? If God is in control of all things from beginning to end, if nothing escapes his sight, who are we to get bent out of shape in this one moment of our lives? But yet sometimes we're so focused on the immediate and the things right now that we miss God's greater plan. Because from the beginning, God had this grand view for humanity. God's plan was, was not quick for us. Because if God was anything like me and I had the ability to create man and woman in my image and they sinned against me, I'd be like, you're done. I'll just wipe you off the map. We'll just create another man and woman. I'm God. I can do that. That's not our God. Our God is patient in long-suffering. And when they said, God, forget your blessings. I want to be my own God. He was patient with them. And when we did the same things in our lives, he was patient with us. His God, in an amazing way, uses the fullness of time and even evil for his purposes. Something we couldn't even imagine. How could something this terrible, this evil, ever come out for good? And Joseph is one of those examples of God's sovereignty, where this great evil was used by God for the betterment of all of his people. We're going to see that this morning. So before we get into our text in Hebrews 11, turn to Genesis 50 with me. I want to give us context to where we are in Hebrews. Genesis 50 verse 20. It's probably one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Because it tells us so much about God, and it answers so many questions we have in our daily lives. So I'm in Genesis chapter 50, and I'm going to start in verse 18. Let me just kind of connect the dots from where we were last week. Last week, we were at the end of Jacob's life. And Jacob is the the patriarch who comes uh, into Egypt, and is saved from the famine by his son Joseph. And his sons, who many of them survive him, when Jacob dies, they start to fear their younger brother. Because the brother that they sold into slavery is now the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And they're basically hoping that Joseph does not kill them. So they're scared to death of Joseph. But Joseph's faith is on full display here when he responds to his brothers in verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. What a great statement. Am I in the place of God? Joseph recognized his rightful place. He's the second most powerful man in the world right now. But he knows where his rightful place is according to God's power. Verse 20 As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I love that. You meant it for evil but God meant it for good. This same language is used at the beginning of Acts, when the apostles are faithfully proclaiming that Jesus Christ has been risen. And he said, you meant it for evil. You crucified him, but God raised him. Over and over and over again in the book of Acts, God raised him, even though you wicked Jews sent him to the cross. Joseph, in like manner, recognizes that even though his brothers had nothing but evil uh, for him in their hearts, that God meant it for good and used it to save all of Israel. So we continue to kind of see where Joseph's mindset is at the, the last moments of his life. So do not fear, verse 21, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you. He says this twice. In a span of a couple of verses, and this is going to be very important, and this is going to be the, the context of our text. So pay attention to this. God will visit you and God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here." So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So now we're in Hebrews 11. So you, you kind of get the context. This is what the Bible tells us about jo- Joseph's last moments. And so Hebrews 11:22 uh, should be up on the screen. And we're just going to leave it up there. Hebrews eleven twenty two says, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Let's pray. God, you are sovereign. You are majestic. You are amazing. You are wonderful. Without beginning, without end, you saw us. You saw the sin that we committed. You saw the sin that everyone would commit. And that you loved us in spite of our sin. You sent your son knowing that we would send him to the cross. Knowing that man would, would hate him with every fiber of their being, man that you created. And Lord, I just pray that we would never forget the beauty of the gospel. And the grace that you have bestowed on us grace that is greater than all our sin. And Lord, I just pray that this one small verse this morning will give us such a rich appreciation and understanding for who you are and what you, your plan is for redemption. And it will give us hope in your second coming and all that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So remember this section we talked about last week in Hebrews 11 is about, it, there's a theme of, of death, Going from verse 13 to verse 22. That though these died in faith, not having received the promise, they still were looking forward to the promises of God. And so these last three accounts, we get the the last days of Isaac, we get the last days of Jacob, we get the last days of Joseph. We don't get any accounts in their lives, but we get their last moments. And we see their faith in the last moments of their lives. We see that this is how the believer can see how to end well. That our faith carries us all the way up until the moment of death. And also, in here, that in these few short words, the life of Joseph is an example and is full of symbolism to many major biblical themes. And we're, we're going to see that this morning. Because Joseph has something very important to teach us about his life and his example and his legacy. We're going to see all those as we get into them. So starting in verse 22, as we do in every one of these texts, Hebrews eleven twenty-two starts with, by faith, Joseph. Now, we're following the pattern of Hebrews 11 here. Joseph is one of those characters in the Bible that we'd love to spend more time on because throughout his life he is an example of faith and of obedience to the Lord. But there's, there's some things that we may tend to forget because Joseph grew up in the midst of paganism, the, the epicenter of a people who are in complete opposition to God. They have many gods in their own making. They're elevating the Pharaoh as God. He was sold off to slavery as a child. He spends a lot of time in jail. Then he grows up in in Pharaoh's house. He's taught the the culture and religion of the Egyptians. He even uh, marries a a, a priestess of one of these gods. There is no written scripture at this time. So his entire life, all he has to go on are the words that were spoken to him by his father, Jacob. And so we can see the extension of Jacob's faith here in the life of Joseph, because that's all he has to go on. He heard God's promises to his father, and he lived by them. Joseph is the ultimate example of raising your child up in the way that they should go. And later on in life, they will not depart from it. Joseph remained faithful to God through this entire time. And his faith caused him to seek the blessings of the God of his fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the gods of Egypt. And Joseph is also what we would call a type of Christ or, or shadow. Uh, basically, Joseph is a shadow that points forward to the real thing. We talked about this a, a few weeks ago. That the shadow gives the shape of what it represents, but the shadow is not the thing itself. Joseph is, is a shape of something to come. Joseph is a, a type. Like when a, a printing press puts ink on a paper, It leaves the the imprint of that typed letter, but it is not the letter itself. It reflects the letter, but it's not the letter itself. That makes sense. So Joseph is a type. Jesus is the anti-type. Jesus is the object that casts the shadow back to Joseph. Jesus is the object that makes this imprint. And I want you to kind of see this. Let's look at some of the parallels in Joseph's life. You may never have thought about this, but as we walk back through Joseph's life, see if anything uh, jumps out at you here. Joseph throughout his, throughout his life as a, as a child and at the last moments retained this intimate relationship with his father. He was obedient and honored his father throughout his entire life. His brothers conspired to kill him. And even though he did nothing wrong or no sin was ever recorded in his life, his brothers hated him. Also, he was left for dead, but God delivered him from that, provided a way out of death. He suffered. He was a suffering servant for his brothers, sold into slavery, put into jail, wrongfully accused for the sake of his brothers and his kindred. He went from a place of honor in his father's house to being scorned and rejected, to being put on a throne. He saved his people from death. He fed them and he provided for them. And he caused them to look forward to a kingdom that is of God and not of man. In each of these, Joseph was a shadow, pointing toward the real thing. In each of these, Jesus was the better Joseph. Jesus did each one of these things perfectly. Joseph's example is supposed to set us up for Christ. Because we see what it looks like to be faithful when all the odds are against you. And So now is where we find ourselves at the end of Joseph's life. Joseph has gone through all this, and how does one finish well? How does one die in faith? By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, looking back to those words in Genesis, what does he mention twice? God will surely visit you, and God's going to take you out of this land. We're going to get to that passage in, in just a moment. But at the end of his life, he was looking toward God as the Redeemer. The people of God always see him as their redemption, him as their identity, him as their salvation, And at the end of his life, Joseph is concerned with the future of his people. He's not concerned with himself. He's not going to be alive to see it, but he's concerned with what the people of God do and where his bones are put. We're going to get into that in a moment. Why are we even concerned about his bones? Quality of all godly leaders is the provision and protection of God's people above themselves. Joseph personifies this has us looking forward to the greater and better Joseph. And so Joseph, at the end of his life, he made mention. This word in the Greek could also be translated remembered. He made mention or remembered. Either one of these can be applied. So we're going to see what he made mention of in just a moment. But think about this act. There's only two verbs in this passage. One is he made mention and one is he gave direction. So the two things that Joseph does at the end of his life is he makes mention of the promises of God. He reminds his people what God has said. Joseph has in mind the promises that were made to Abraham. We're going to turn to Genesis 15 in just a second. But remember we said in Genesis 50, this is said twice, God will visit you. God will surely visit you. Joseph is looking forward. And the interesting thing about this promise that Joseph is calling upon, it's made 200 years earlier. No written scripture. No other believers around him, but it is so implanted in him that our God is a faithful God. And the promise that was made to my great-grandfather 200 years ago, I'm still holding on to today. And I'm going to send off my people out of Egypt with. And the other part of this is that we'll see in just a moment in Genesis 15, it was not to the fourth generation. So 400 years in the future, this will take place. Joseph, at the last, his last moments, what does he want them to know? That God was faithful 200 years ago, and you're not even going to be alive for this. But tell your children that in 400 years, God is going to take you out of this place. Because God has a plan for you. Because God is going to bring you to the land that he has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Looks back 200 years. Remember, this always goes back to Hebrews 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. the Conviction of things not seen. 400 years in the future, he definitely did not see this. But because his God is faithful, it was as real to him as, it was, as if it was happening tomorrow. I mean, that takes faith. For you to trust in a promise 200 years ago that you heard as a child and have not heard since, something that would not happen into 400 years in the future, we have a hard enough time trusting in God and we don't get our prayers answered in five minutes, let alone 200 years Joseph's patience and his steadfastness was a reflection of his God who was patient and steadfast. So I have a question for you guys in asking for myself first. Why do we have such a hard time being patient? Why do we have such a hard time trusting in the promises of God? Why do we need everything at an instant? There's a verse in 2 Peter that gives perspective to this. I want you to turn to the end of 2 Peter for me. This is something that we quote often so in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 8 and 9. But I want you to see the context of this. So 2nd Peter chapter 3 is talking about the end of days, the day of the Lord, the judgment that is to come on all who rebel against him. So he's writing to believers, believers like us, like God, why aren't you punishing the wicked? Why is evil still going on? Why don't you wipe them off the face of the earth? Listen to what Peter says. This is so important to the Christian life and so important for us to understand patience. 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Many of us have quoted that. To try to understand the mind of God. But we must keep reading. Why is God patient? Okay, one, we know that the... Uh, the nature of God God is not phased by one day the same way we are but why is God slow as people would assume look at verse 9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill his, his promise as some would count slowness we think God's slow because he doesn't show up right now and there are a lot of people who base their their gospels on God needs to show up right now or he's not real and if you're and if God doesn't show up right now you don't have enough faith God is slow for a reason in our perspective. Why? Because he's patient toward you. He's talking to believers here. God is such concern for his people that he is enduring vessels of wrath for your sake. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The purpose of God's patience is that people would turn to him. Repent from their sins, that not one of his sheep would be lost. And so into the fullness of time, God is enduring vessels of wrath. Remember, he's writing to believers here. So he's telling people that if you think God is too slow, if he came back quicker, you would be dead. You would not have reached repentance. Continue that your brothers and sisters will, will reach repentance as well. Patience is developed when we recognize God's patience toward us. And as I began with, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that comes out of the working of the Spirit in our lives. True patience is not possible without the Holy Spirit. True patience is impossible without the Holy Spirit. You ever try to be patient on your own strength without resting in the Lord? You will be frustrated without end. But because of God's patience, because of the working in the Spirit in us, He can teach us patience. But He does that over time. Patience is a godly discipline. Patience is something He does in His people over time. God does not work in us quickly. If He wasn't just lay it out for us, we'd forget in five minutes. There are lessons we can only learn over time that we can't learn quickly. And as you grow in Christ, you realize that more often than not, that is how the Lord works is over time in us. God always gives us what we need, but rarely gives us what we think we want. He always has our good in mind. What we mean for evil, what the world means for evil, God means for good. And this is why in our culture, it's such a hindrance to our reliance on God. Because everything needs to be immediate. Everything is instant gratification. We are conditioned by every voice that surrounds us not to rest in God, not to trust in Him, to want results right away. We read these stories the the same way that Joseph remembered or made mention of the promises of God, we do that to one another. Because just as Israel needed to be reminded, we need to be reminded that God is faithful to his people at all times, throughout all history. I was thinking about, uh, how do we explain this? What's so a good analogy? And I was thinking about the difference between a microscope and a telescope. What do you do with a microscope? A microscope, you take uh, one moment in time, you take one one molecule or, or one sample and you, your head is down and you're so focused on this one moment in time that you can't see anything else. Isn't that our culture right now? Right now, it's whatever headline is going on at the moment, whatever everyone is upset about, whatever's going on in my life right now, I'm going to zoom in. I'm going I'm to focus in on and everything else is a blur. But yet when you read scripture, God's plan started from the beginning of time and will go until... Christ's return. It's much bigger than us. A telescope helps us to see a little better. How does a telescope help in a storm? Because when you're in a storm, all you see are are the clouds and the thunder that are right in front of you. You think this is it. This is all life will ever be is this storm. But a vision that sees beyond the storm sees that there's clear skies over there. A microscope has you looking at this one instant. Where a telescope helps you to see that beyond this storm, there's another mountain ridge, and there's a beautiful valley, and there's a calm sea. And so we need to be people who have perspective, because many times we will miss the forest for the trees. You ever heard that expression? You know what that expression means? If you ever gone out in, into nature with someone, you see, man, this is amazing. Look how beautiful God's creation is. It's like, why is that tree crooked? And now all you can see is this one tree or this one thing that's out of place. God's plan of redemption, his sovereignty has this amazing tapestry that we've talked about so many times, this amazing forest. So many times we get focused on the one thing that is not right. The one thing that is out of place that we miss the forest. We, we, we miss the bigger picture. And the whole thing about scripture and the whole thing about these examples is to tie everything together that we think Joseph is so disconnected from the New Testament and the New Testament is so disconnected from us. But in reality, the same God who was working in the time of Joseph, who is was working in the time of the apostles, who is was working in the time of the reformers, who is working in us, is the same God who will bring all things to fulfillment one day. And scripture helps us to see how these things are, are not disconnected ideas, but we remember that God is working in all of them. So I want you to see, when Joseph makes mention of the Exodus, there's so much for us to learn from that. Because the Exodus is is another example of typology, another shadow of things to come. And so before we get there, what did Joseph make mention of? Uh, Turn to Genesis 15 for me. And some of you who are very detailed we'll notice that when we read Genesis 15 and we were talking about God's covenant with Abraham, we skipped this passage. There's a few verses in the middle of Genesis 15 that we skipped over because we would be here one day. Genesis 15, and going to start in verse 12. So God's covenant with Abraham, he's telling him he's going to be, he's going to make him fruitful, he's going to multiply him, he's going to give him land and seed, and then there's this trance that comes over Abraham and he has this, this dream. It seems really out of place here. If we read through this text, there's this covenant ceremony. The animals are split in half. There's a a smoking pot that goes through them. It's kind of a crazy scene. And then Abraham is put to sleep and he dreams of something. God gives him this vision and this vision is important. Look at this. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out of it with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. 200 years earlier, in a dream, God says to Abraham, your people are going to be slaves. And I'm going to deliver them. And I'm going to bring them out in great possession, and it's going to happen in the fourth generation. This is what Joseph is looking back to. This is what Joseph is making a remembrance of. He's remembering the Exodus. He can't remember the Exodus because it hasn't happened yet, but he remembers God's promise to his great-grandfather. So what does the Exodus have to do with us? I want to walk through some of the events of the Exodus, some of the details, and let me know if anything sounds familiar here. So in Egypt, God's people are enslaved. They're under evil rule. God sends a faithful representative to proclaim deliverance and good news. Signs and wonders accompany this representative of God to show God's power and glory. The last sign was the ultimate one, death. No one was saved from death unless they were covered by the blood of a perfect Sacrifice. And a meal was instituted to represent that sacrifice. Because of that sacrifice, the people were saved from slavery. They were brought out of slavery, headed to a promised land. But they must live in the wilderness for a little while to learn how to depend on God. And for the first time in the history of uh, of God's people, God dwelt among them tabernacled with them. God's very presence was among the people. And over and over and over again, the people needed to be reminded of God's sovereignty, of God's control, of God's plan for them. They needed to be taught how to live in faith. Sound familiar? It should. The Exodus is supposed to stand as an example for us. Let's walk back through this for a second. Let's think about us, God's people, us, we're in slavery, under evil rule, enslaved to sin. God sent a faithful representative, his son, to proclaim deliverance, to proclaim good news. Along with the message of good news were signs and wonders, miracles to confirm that this is from God. The last sign, the ultimate one, is death. Usually death is the end of the story. But for those who are covered by the blood. And it could only be a spotless sacrifice. For those who were covered by the blood of the spotless sacrifice, they were saved from sin. They were saved from their slavery to sin and became slaves to righteousness. And they were let out of sin with promises of a land that will be their own forever. A promised land. But between the exodus of slavery and before the promised land, there's a time in the wilderness. Where all you can do is trust on God. Where all you can do is look for manna from heaven, daily bread, daily provision from the Lord. And that time in the wilderness, God's people need to be reminded over and over and over again our God is faithful, our God is sovereign, our God has a plan, He has promised a place for us. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, we are still in the wilderness. We still wake up every day trusting that the Lord will provide for us. Because we're not home yet. And until we're brought into the promised land, we are still in this, we are still exiles. We've been brought out of slavery, but we have not fully been brought to the fullness of God's plan for us. We're going to look at this the next few weeks we're going to spend on this exodus process, so we're not going to get into this too much. So back in our text here in uh, Hebrews 11, there are There are two verbs. Remember, there's two things that Joseph does. The first thing is he makes mention of the Exodus. The second thing is that he gives direction concerning his bones. So, okay, what's the deal with his bones? Like, Why should we even care? Uh, there is biblical significance to bones. First of all, the body is created by God. Okay, that we understand. But when the body deteriorates, the last thing that, it, that goes are the bones. They're the last vestige of the person. And it actually, in that culture, in that time, signified the the, the fate and the importance of the person. So how the bones were treated and where they were were buried gave a lot of significance. There's actually commandments uh, in in the law about how someone should be buried and the bones should not be uncovered and they should not be defiled in, in certain places. And if they were not buried correctly, it could desecrate the entire land. So it's very important. Uh, where they were buried. You, you look at burial accounts of all of, of the patriarchs. But Joseph's is the most interesting, because we're going to see in just a moment, Joseph is the only one that we can trace uh, through all of the, 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 the Pentateuch. We're going to see that in just a moment. There's another parallel that I didn't bring up. Joseph's bones were kept intact. And when they were commanded for the uh, Passover, they were also commanded to not break one bone of the Passover lamb. And there's a detail about Jesus' death on the cross. Not one of his bones was broken. Because if the bones were broken or destroyed in any way, there was no hope of coming back from death. This was was kind of woven under the scenes here. And you you, you see the, the bones play a significant role. And it's interesting, the last detail in Genesis 50 was that he was embalmed. And the Egyptian process of embalming would take all the fluids out of the body, but the bones were left intact. So even the Egyptian embalming did did not change the importance of the bones. Okay, so all right, why do we care? Because Israel cared. Because Joseph gave them directions concerning his bones, and I didn't realize this until studying this week, but Joseph's bones are traveling with them throughout all of the wilderness. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, we're just going to look at one verse. Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. 400 years later, they still have Joseph's bones. Moses has them. Moses remembers, they remembered. Israel was faithful to remind Moses, hey, this guy, Joseph, your great-great-great-great-grandfather or uncle, whoever he was, wanted you to hold on to these bones. And so they take them with them into the wilderness. Uh, And the the word that we didn't get into in, in Genesis, now when they said it, it's put in a coffin. It's the Hebrew word arom, which also means ark. The same word for ark is coffin. So in the wilderness... The Israelites had two arks. One had the Ten Commandments. One had the bones of Joseph. This was not lost on um, Hebrew commentators. There's a Hebrew commentator named Lewis Ginsberg. Go figure. And he says, The dead man enshrined in one fulfilled the commandments enshrined in the other. So the Jews saw this connection between one who would keep the law and the law itself. So close. That Joseph was the shadow of The law keeper, there's no sins mentioned of Joseph in Scripture. He was not the law keeper that they should be looking to. Remember, he's the shadow of the one that was to come. So, this connection between the law and the one who would would keep the law was a constant reminder for Israel for their entire time in the wilderness. So, last verse. So, turn to Joshua, the end of Joshua, chapter 24. So Genesis, Joseph gives direction for his bones. Exodus, they're carrying his bones. Leviticus, they're carrying his bones. Numbers, they're carrying his bones. Deuteronomy, they're carrying his bones. Joshua, they're carrying his bones. At the very end of Joshua, this little side note. Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. In case you forgot, four books later, as for the bones of Joseph... Which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. In the place of land that Joseph, or excuse me, that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. All this time later, they're still holding on to Joseph's bones. Because Joseph. Even if he was not alive, his inheritance was with his people. His place was with his people. He found no inheritance in Egypt. It's easy to say, I don't belong in Egypt when you're a slave and you're a peasant. But imagine saying, I'm a king. I'm the second in charge in Egypt and I want nothing to do with these pagans. I want to be with my people. Even, not even my bones shall stay here. Joseph's concern was first for his people and second that his bones would remain with his people. And I was also reminded of one of the greatest pictures of the gospel in all of scripture. We're going to close with this last example in Ezekiel 37. It's one of those passages that always kind of interested me and perplexed me. The valley of the dry bones. What is the symbolism of these, these, these bones? What do these bones teach us? So Ezekiel is brought by the Lord in the spirit. And he's brought to a valley with, with dry bones. Ezekiel 37. I'm going to start in verse 3. So God says to Ezekiel, I love his answer here. Just kind of a, a piece of advice. If God ever asked you a question, this is the only appropriate answer. Verse 3. God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh, oh Lord God, you know. If God ever asks you a question, this is the only acceptable answer. God, do you know? This is not like Job who presumes on God. Ezekiel was in the right place before God. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to take these dead, dry bones that were scattered over the desert and breathe life into them. So I prophesied, as I was commanded. Good boy. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath: Thus said the Lord God: Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, in ex- and an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, this is important: These bones are the whole house of Israel. What did Paul tell us was the house of Israel? Those who are connected to Abraham by faith. The whole house of Israel. Behold, they may say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from the grave, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. We sung earlier that we will be raised as Christ was. We will be glorified one day. This is a great gospel picture of what God is doing. He takes dead bones and for his good and his glory, he brings them to life. He, puts, he takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. He breathes life into them, and they stand as an army. Spiritual warriors. And God, in his sovereignty, he knew their rebellion. He knew that they would rebel against him, but he knew that he would raise them up for the sake of his glory. And Joseph's bones will be raised up one day for the sake of God's glory. So what do we walk away with today? Joseph was not swayed by riches. He was not swayed by Egypt. He did not deter in his faith when the promises of God were not fulfilled in the time that he thought they should. But he trusted God's word. From his forefathers to the generations that came after him. When you know that God has been working all things out for our good and for his glory, and that he's not done working here yet, but he's already finished everything that needs to be accomplished. We can rest in that. And so just like Joseph looked forward to his redemption and the redemption of his people from slavery, so God's people, we need to look forward to the coming of our Redeemer. We need to be anxious for him to come, but patient. Because our God has been patient toward us, and there are others who have not turned and repented yet. And for the sake of his people, for his sheep, God is long-suffering toward us and our sin and his lost sheep who are out there. So let us follow Joseph's example in being patient people who remember and remind one another of the promises of God and give direction on how we should live until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your patience toward us. Thank you for your long-suffering. Thank you that you are not impatient and unmerciful like we are. Thank you that you are not short-sighted. Before the foundation of the earth, you knew us. You loved us and you knew you would send your son for us. Lord, help us to be people who patiently await your return. Who never grow tired of reminding one another of your promises and giving direction while we walk in this wilderness. And Lord, that help us never to get too comfortable here in Egypt when rea- knowing that in reality we are in a wilderness. But our promised land is to come. And Lord, I just pray that we put our hope and our trust in you and that your spirit strengthen us and give us wisdom. And apply this to our hearts and to our feet. And Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that we were dead and dried bones. You breathed life into us for the sake of your glory and as an example of your grace and love and mercy toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.